Hello, and welcome to Amplifying the Past, a regular series of conversations on history brought to you by the History Department at Boston University. I'm James Johnson, a historian of European history and one of our regular hosts. In each episode of Amplifying the Past, we'll be diving deep into one corner of history and some of the ways we and our colleagues have been working to tell it. Along the way, we'll be introducing you to some of the new ideas that are exciting us, as well as our colleagues elsewhere. When we think of the Cold War, we think of confrontation. We hear in our imagination Winston Churchill's proclamation in Fulton, Missouri, that an iron curtain has now descended in Eastern Europe. And we hear Nikita Khrushchev's taunting words in reply, we will bury you. We see in our mind's eye the fault line dividing NATO and Warsaw Pact's troops and the unending buildup of weapons on both sides. Most people think of the decades after World War II as an implacable struggle, not just between great powers, but between their peoples as well, and most especially between American and Soviet citizens. Our guest today is the historian Alexis Perry, who tells a different story about the Cold War, one in which American women write letters to Soviet women who respond in kind. This correspondence she describes as copious, warm, and often personal. It shares experiences of joy, of loss, of small satisfactions, and deep grief. These women did not see the confrontation their leaders announced as inevitable. Thanks to this extraordinary trove of letters, a more complicated account of the Cold War is now emerging. Alexis Perry, welcome to Amplifying the Past. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about this remarkable correspondence, I'd like to ask you how you became interested in Russian history and Soviet history in particular. It's a good question, and it's hard to remember an exact moment, but I think I think it was when I started college and I took a lot of 20th century American history. My memory from high school is that we, we did American history, but we kept starting over from the beginning, and so we never got to the 20th century. And so I was so eager to take 20th century history when I got to university, and I took that, and it was fascinating and really engrossing. And I was just becoming aware enough through my various history courses I was taking my first year to realize that if I had studied the same time period from a totally different national perspective, I might get quite a different narrative. And that was sort of an idea that I had just started to realize, something that we impress upon our students now. So after taking a couple courses in 20th century American history, I decided to take Soviet history. And I was just fascinated by how different the narrative was, how different the explanations were of similar events, how different kind of the inflection points were. And so from that point on, I was just fascinated because I knew that this perspective was completely different than the one I grew up with and the one that I encountered as part of everyday life. Let's talk about this particular collection of letters. Can you tell us how you became aware of it and what your first thoughts were as you begin to read these letters? So the answer is dumb luck. <laughs> I got to the archives and I really wanted and planned to write a book about the role of Soviet women in rebuilding the Soviet Union after World War II, since the war was so devastating for the Soviet Union the gender ratios between men and women were extraordinary. On average, something like one man to 14 women. And many of the men who survived were not able-bodied workers. So the two main able-bodied populations that rebuild the Soviet Union are women and German prisoners of war. So I set off to really focus on, on women and the role that they played in, in the reconstruction process. 
And when I was looking through some of those files, tossed in with what I had ordered were a couple of letters that were arranged by this group called the Soviet Women's Anti-Fascist Committee. And the letters were just these little snapshots, these little snippets of people's lives, but asking for really mundane things. So recipes, photographs, asking about weather and favorite foods. And yet also tied to those questions were these big lofty goals, like I hope that we can forge peace through this or hope that our peoples can come to an understanding. And so from there, I started to explicitly order, (laughs) deliberately order boxes where there would be letters. And I discovered that there are thousands of them, not just between Soviet and American women, but between Soviet women and women all over the world. Um, but I decided for this project to really just focus on the American letters. Can you tell us about a single set of letters between an American and a Soviet woman that for you is especially memorable? Sure. So uh, there are a lot of really memorable pairs. And the way I've arranged this book project is I focus on sort of six pairs in particular, and then just dip into a couple other correspondences. But a pair that really stands out to me is Jean Wolfe, who was from Manhattan, Kansas, the mother of two children. Her husband was a faculty member at the Kansas State University. And then her pen friend, whose name was, well, she had a, her way she signed her letters was her as Ekaterina Andreeva. But it turns out her real name was Ekaterina Andreevna Zhilabuskaya. So she wrote under a pen name. And it turns out that she was actually the daughter of a very famous actress and the stepdaughter of Gorky, who was sort of one of the most famous of Russian writers. But she doesn't mention any of this in her letters. She writes really without any discussion of kind of her political pedigree or her social standing. And they exchange about a little over two dozen letters. And what's really interesting there is how, how eager and how quickly they are in terms of wanting to be friends. So actually, the way it works is that Jean is writing to some other Soviet woman, and Ekaterina is translating those letters. And then she gets so excited by Jean's letters that she butts in and she says, I just couldn't help responding to your letters. And I saw that picture of your 16-year-old son, Don, and boy, he is just an all-American wholesome boy. And I'm so interested and send me a picture of your younger son, Cameron, and so on and so forth. And what they end up talking about mostly is parenting. Parenting decisions, how they're raising their children, whether or not they give them allowance, what kinds of values they're learning in school, as well as really getting to know each other. And they write with such affection and enthusiasm for each other's children. They're very concerned when anything happens to each other's children that is upsetting or difficult. The letters are effusive in terms of praise and as well as personal concern for each other. Jean often talks about how, how hard it is to be a housewife, how much work she's doing. And she's also trying to work as a journalist. And she contemplates quitting her job. And Ekaterina says, no, please don't quit your job. This is an important part of who you are and your profession and your ambition. So there's a real attempt to kind of shape each other's lives. But in this discussion about their children, they end up having all of these debates that are extremely cordial and friendly and always couched in the most positive of terms. But essentially what emerges from the discussions of how to raise children is a debate about whether individualism and individuality should be prioritized over collectivism. So it's a kind of classic U.S.-Soviet divide, a classic debate, one of those main sort of ideological fault lines of the Cold War. 
but you can see how much they personalize it through the discussion. So things like, you know, do you, do you pay your child allowance or do you encourage them to get an after-school job for them to make pocket? And that is sort of what Jean Wolfe does. And she explains why this is important to teach her children the value of earning money, to give them the independence and autonomy of doing so, to practice hard work and to serve their community. And Ekaterina writes back and says, well, I'm all for children to do labor. It's really important. And I'm all for community service, but I don't see why they should be paid to do this work. Shouldn't they be doing it voluntarily to sort of repay the community for everything that the community does for them and so on and so forth. And then Jean writes back and says, oh, you know, I didn't mean to offend you. I understand. So it's extremely cordial. And they'll say things like, we won't fight about this. Will we, Katya? So they call each other Jenya and Katya, so nicknames. We won't fight about this. We can find a way to get along. We can disagree respectfully. And so it's this whole series of letters that on the surface, they seem like they're sort of about nothing. And when I've presented this to people in the past, they say, well, why didn't they talk about the Korean War? And why aren't they talking about the atomic bomb and other things that we think are, are sort of more important and more pressing? But what's so interesting to me is how they, they take these ideological fault lines of the Cold War and then they personalize them and how they really focus on connecting more than winning the argument. So in the end, they just sort of let it go and they don't try to force their opinion on, another, on each other. And they realize that maintaining the connection and the conversation is more important and being right. And that's a sort of major lesson that I think the, the, the governments involved really don't learn until the late 1980s. The article that you have written about this correspondence is called Spreading Intimacy and Influence. And you're describing in this correspondence, first, the things that these two women had in common that promotes a kind of intimacy. You're describing also areas of real disagreement foreign experiences. I'm thinking about another set of correspondence that you write about, and that's Althea Grossman of St. Louis mm -hmm. and Ekaterina Germont of mm -hmm. the Soviet Union. Germont contrasts the Soviet system favorably to the American system. In the USSR, she writes, nobody is left alone. In the USSR, she writes, nobody is left alone. Even if they have no family, we are just one big united family. Americans don't understand. And from this arise your wrong ideas about life. And I wonder for you, as you read this, are these moments of correspondence that can be intimate? Do you think these were moments of true understanding? Or do you think these are moments of a resort to the national and nationalist language of mutual suspicion? Or is, is there something else going on? Well, I think it's it's hard to pinpoint which one it is, and I think it may be a combination of both. And what is definitely clear is that most women, American and Soviet, double down on their ideological commitments. So they don't they don't say, "Oh, you're right," and I've completely changed my mind. For example, generally speaking, they stick to their own values and defend their values. So it's it's very hard to tell if it's if there's a moment of sort of genuine understanding or if they're resorting to kind of their comfortable assumptions and ideologies that, they're, that they bring from their national context. I think it's a combination of both. And I think that the way that the women make sense of their own lives and their own decisions is in large part based on their cultural inheritance and values. So I think that we see that ideology gets operationalized, but I don't think it's done necessarily insincerely 
or kind of by rote. Because what, what you see Germont going on to say, or the context of when she says that, is to describe a very personal loss in her life. So these are, these are defenses of national ways of life, but ones that are highly personalized. And I think that's what I'm most interested in, is the way that people make perhaps make sense of their own, own experiences and own stories through their personal stories, as well as the way they might defend their own actions in that way. So I think it's really a combination. And it's hard to pinpoint, you know, are they being sincere or insincere? Because there are so many pressures, they're dealing with censorship, they're dealing with observation. But I really think that that there is space, even within this very regimented, restrictive space, for them to have moments of genuine connection. So I don't preclude that possibility. And as you speak about this relationship, which was a combination of moments of understanding combined with mutual suspicion, the language that was so familiar to each side. Yet there was a kind of diplomacy as well that was going on. I'm thinking of another woman you talk about, someone from Connecticut, who said, to me, human contacts are much more important than a thousand diplomatic overtures. So I wonder if you could just talk about what kind of diplomacy was this and was it different from traditional diplomacy? Well, certainly the women involved felt like it was different. And they felt like it was different for a number of reasons. First of all, because they were women. There's a very heavy emphasis on gender in these letters and a very strong belief on both sides that they can no longer trust male politicians to ensure peace, especially after the Second World War. And that women, a belief that women are more invested in peace because they give birth to children and care for children. And also that women are better, <clears throat> excuse me, negotiators, better communicators, better at forging personal connections and willing to be open emotionally and otherwise. And finally, because they were, they felt this diplomacy would work because they were quote unquote ordinary. They described themselves as ordinary, as little, as small people all the time. And in that sense, they are, are not responsible but for all of the tensions and the missteps that have happened in the past between American and Soviet leadership. So they think that they can speak plainly, as ordinary people would, speak from the heart, especially because they're women, and find this common ground that their leadership has been unable or unwilling to find in the past. How do you assess the larger effects of this diplomacy? Well, I think in terms of the first question, they believed, which is kind of a core idea behind many, many programs of citizen diplomacy and cultural diplomacy, they believed that if people just get together in a room or in this case over correspondence and they just talk about themselves in a personal and open way, they'll realize they have much more in common than they have that's dividing them. And that this basic understanding of commonality as people, as humans, as mothers, that this is enough of a foundation on which to build peaceful relations. Say, we both have the same interests. We both want the same things. That's really a core idea that undergirds lots of citizen diplomacy ventures. And then there is the, the governments who oversee these or the organizations who oversee these, and they're quite skeptical. So if you look at State Department records, at USIA records, at the records of the Central Committee, they go back and forth between thinking, yes, individual contacts, whether over letters or face-to-face -face or in the form of cultural delegations, that these will improve understanding. And then they're also deeply skeptical, thinking, well, how can we quantify this? How do we measure influence? 
Are these programs worth funding? So there's a real back and forth, a real question about whether or not citizen diplomacy works. And that's an idea that doesn't just affect the project I'm looking at, but many other ventures as well. So there's a, it's a difficult to measure and to know. But what I think I found in my own case is that though we don't see many instances of women saying during the correspondence, oh, you're right, now I believe you, <laughs> I've been converted, we do see them become more open. We see their realm of possibility expand. We see their active comparison between their way of life and an alternative way of life. And I think all of that has a kind of indirect but important influence on each other. And what I've been doing as of late, is, when possible, is tracking down the families of many of these letter writers. It's easier to contact the ones in the United States, to be sure, so I've started there. But I've also found some memoirs and other writings from Soviet letter writers, things they wrote long after they stopped corresponding. And you can see moments where these conversations may have indeed had an impact. So there's certainly not an easily measurable or quantifiable kind of influence that we see here. But I think there's a really important indirect one where biggest things that they discuss, big themes that they discuss come up again later in their life. And then one quick addendum to your question, many of the women involved in organizing this project, Soviet and American, went on to be official leaders in both the women's movement and the peace movement, running important institutions. And so in that sense, this small project does have an indirect influence on some of the, the main social movements of the late 20th century. So I think as long as we're open to the idea that impact and influence is not an easily measurable, quantifiable thing, I think we can be open to the idea that, that extensive conversations with someone in another culture and a personal connection with them does have, does sort of leave its inroads and its imprint on, on somebody. You mentioned memoirs, family members, puts me in mind of your book, The World Within, the 2017 award-winning book on the experiences of Russians who lived through the 872-day Nazi siege of Leningrad. And I, I want to ask you about what what is important and what you find appealing about writing about the experience of individual lives, because that connects your book and this current project. And I guess I'd, I guess I'd ask, what, what does that experience of individual lives in the past teach us that more traditional histories don't? I think we connect to individual lives and individual stories. I think when we can personalize events, they have a much more of a, they sit with us in a much more profound way. And I think that as someone who studies Soviet history, there's a real tendency, especially on the part of Americans, but on from many other peoples as well, to see only sort of a regime and then a, and a kind of faceless, powerless society. And to think of the, think of the Soviet project really in terms of elite leaders and policies and then cataclysmic kinds of events and tragedies. And I think that the way to understand and unpack those stories, whether it's the story of the Second World War, as in my book that you mentioned, or the story of the Cold War, the way to really unpack those is to connect with individuals and to see the many-sided nature of their experiences, their multiple motivations, the kinds of emotional and personal challenges that they were facing. I think that's, only, I think that's the only way we can truly understand. If we stay at the realm of the state or of policy or of elite leaders, 
we never really are able to connect with what makes up history, which is, you know, millions and millions of individual actors making individual decisions. So for me, I think it's especially imperative with the Soviet Union, but with all national histories to try to really connect to the human stories. So I suppose that's, that's, that's what I've done in both the book project and in current project as well. Does working with these approaches um, give you any perspective on the current state of U.S.-Russia relations? Well, I think what it does show for sure is that what we see on the news, what is being said in political speeches, what's being covered on the television cannot be accepted as a reliable guide to what people are thinking and feeling. I have done put considerable effort into staying into close contact with my friends in Russia, and they have with me as well. And I can tell you from that experience that what's being presented by the media is not is not identical with people's experiences. And they have told me from their own stories that their relatives, their friends who are susceptible to some of the media messages also have their own personal reasons for doing so. So the story is never as simple. simple. It's never as black and white as we like to think of it. And I think particularly with U.S.-Russia relations, there's a real tendency to think of things in black and white binary terms. And it's, I think as we get to individual perspectives, we really see how that isn't so. So I think that this kind of work has given me that perspective. And it also gives me hope that even during the bleakest times, there is a desire for friendship and for connection. And there is an effort. People will put forward active effort in order to establish those things, despite active war or tremendous, tremendous odds, escalating tensions and so forth. As we move toward the end of this conversation, there are two final questions that we like to ask our guests, and they are, how do you think where you grew up shapes the kind of history you write? And secondly, is there a non-historical work, a novel, a movie, a piece of music, a work of art, et cetera, that you would recommend to others who want to know more about the world that you are working in? Good questions. Well, I grew up in Oakland, California, and spent most of my life in Oakland, Berkeley, and San Francisco when I was a, when I was a kid and a teenager. My parents were both members of the left. They talked about tear gas and they talked about protests, and those were some of their early early stories that they passed on to me. So I think I grew up with that political persuasion. And one one downside of that persuasion is I sometimes felt like because I was critical of many US policies that I was sort of above ideology, right? Not susceptible to sort of my own my own nation's ideology or national narratives and so forth. And it, and it was, I think a lot of my work is inspired by the idea that that's not true. We're all susceptible to our national ideology. We all am, internalize certain aspects of our national culture, even in a way that we might not be aware of. So when we talk about people being ideological, I think because of the way I grew up and the assumptions that I had made, false assumptions I had made, that we need to bring a lot more nuance to that. Most people think that they're above ideology, <laughs> when in fact, we all have some of them that are shared in our, in our countries. In terms of a book or a non-history text or a movie, I think there are two, two films that I like to show in classes that really connect with students. Both of them are Soviet films. One is a documentary called My Perestroika, 
which follows a set of classmates, I think about five or six classmates who went through grade school together and then high school together. And it uses their home movies and their childhood experiences and then also interviews with them in the post-Soviet years. And it's a really wonderful film because the people all know each other and they rekindle these friendships, but also because they talk very explicitly about the transition from life under communism to post-communist life. And I think that, that that's a movie that really resonates with students, again, because it personalizes this kind of monumental shift in geopolitics. And then the other thing I like to show students that they connect with are Soviet comedies, especially romantic comedies. I think there is a tendency to assume that sort of the, the project of building socialism meant a place was humorless <laughs> or that people didn't fall in love or do silly things. And so I show a movie called Office Place Romance or Office Romance, which is incredibly educational in terms of Soviet culture, but it's also just really fun. It's kind of a fun, wild romp. And students find themselves saying a little bit of shame to themselves. I didn't know that Soviet people could make fun of themselves in this way or that they had a sense of humor. And you think, of course they can. So it's an important reminder that, that you can kind of see the humanity, I think, in other cultures. So those are those are a couple of things that I like to share with students that are non not history texts, but really powerful. Alexis Perry is a professor in the history department of Boston University, where she teaches courses on Imperial Russia, the history of the Soviet Union, and experiencing total war. And that's all for this episode of Amplifying the Past. For questions, comments, or show suggestions, send us an email at history at bu.edu, find us on Twitter at at historybu, or DM us on Instagram on at bu underscore history. Please take this time to subscribe to Amplifying the Past via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else finer podcasts are found and downloaded. If you enjoyed the show, please take the time to leave a review or recommend us to a friend. Thanks again to Alexis Perry for joining us today. Amplifying the Past is a production of the Department of History at Boston University. I'm James Johnson, and please join us next time for more conversations on history.